Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. The Marxist philosopher Theodore Adorno once quipped that much of his work was written without practical applications in mind, and that the constant demand for immediate practical relevance felt like being asked by occupied forces to present one's papers. While hyperbolic, the frustration is real among many progressive activists and intellectuals, and also points to a real problem within political engagement with how the need to act right now sometimes can cloud judgment. Against this grain, some occasionally step up and encouraging us to step back and collect ourselves in our thoughts. One such writer uh, is the topic of this episode, Marcello Tari, whose recent book, There Is No Unhappy Revolution, The Communism of Destitution, recently became the first it is translated into English. Written from and for a scattered and confused left, the the book has a style resembling the more esoteric and messianic figures in the left's history, most notably Walter Benjamin, who appears throughout the book's footnotes. In a series of chapters that wander through a number of disparate topics, it slowly develops a few key themes around late capitalism, violence, oppression, revolution, and temporality. Although a simple definition or analysis of one of these elements in isolation never comes, instead they are developed and intertwined in various ways as a way of understanding the social and psychological knots we're caught in. Easy fixes don't come easy here either. Instead, Therese's goal is in many ways to cultivate our sensitivity to our current political predicament, to speak to comrades in a way that generates a productive confusion that might help us think more critically about what's needed. In the discussion that follows, Tari was unable to join us, but I was instead joined by two artists, Irene and Renee, who have known Tari for some time and proved careful and patient guides through the text. My typical formula for working through texts with guests broke down here. With every question I asked if they could define a term or explain a passage, and every time they would take various detours through topics and themes I hadn't expected, only to eventually come back to my initial question, but with a newfound angle into it I hadn't picked up during my own reading of the book. As a result, I left the conversation feeling like I was finally able to read the book, and I appreciate their willingness to sit with me on it. This book was challenging to read and is even more challenging to describe, but it should be of interest to anyone engaged in contemporary political struggle. Tari is a self-described barefoot researcher of contemporary political movements and struggles, and has published works in both French and Italian. He is also the translator of The Invisible Committee's The Coming Insurrection. Irene and Renee, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Hi. All right, so to kick things off with this book, central to what Tari is trying to do is talk about destitution. So I'm sure we'll kind of unpack this term a lot as time goes on, but I'm wondering if we could just get kind of a preliminary 
uh, definition or idea of what destitution is for Tari and the role it plays in this book? Yeah, I would say that there's a lot of different ways to approach uh, where and how Machado is trying to think. And maybe part of the book is trying to open up a space to understand not only what it could be, but what calls for it. And I think maybe most of the book, in a way, is trying to do both at once. So I would say maybe as a beginning, it's good to think about all the references of the the notion and where they're coming from. So I would say uh, the figures that I kind of mapped out are, of course, the writings of Walter Benjamin uh, and his maybe seminal text around the critique of violence, Mario Tronti, uh, Maurice Blanchot, uh, Rainer Schurman, and Invisible Committee, as well as, uh, I would say, uh, Giorgio Gamben, maybe the most central figure with Benjamin in terms of uh, trying to think this notion. So both, I think, if we... And then maybe Colectivo Situaciones uh, also. So uh, a collective from Argentina who uh, seminally, in a way, in the context of the Argentinian crisis that unfolded in 2001, wrote this very uh, critical book that tried to think with and through that movement. And uh, so... In a way, he's trying to reconcile these different instances of destituent potential and power. And uh, in a way, it's strange to begin from another book. But I thought it could be useful because in a way, this this short uh, excerpt from Colectivo Situaciones kind of lays out the ground of what's at stake, because uh, defining terms and doing all of that may not even get us close to what what calls for even this this thought. So in that moment, uh, Colectivo Situaciones isn't necessarily referencing all these other philosophers. They're trying to just think what the heck is happening in this moment politically. And so they write, If we talk about insurrection, then we do not do so in the same way in which we have talked about other insurrections. This one, the one of the 19th and 20th of December, takes place by opening spaces that go beyond the knowledge about other insurrections, such as they have existed in the entire Marxist-Leninist discourse on revolution. Indeed, it was an insurrection to the extent that we witnessed the disruption of an order that claimed to be sovereign over the multitude. If we retain the notion of insurrection to name the mixture of bodies, ideas, trajectories, languages that were present on the 19th and 20th, we do so aware of every resistance to inscribing the singularity of this event in a lineage of knowledge about history prescribed by an allegedly scientific subjectivity. In fact, the movement of the 19th and 20th was more destituent action than a classical instituting movement. The original translation of that in, from Spanish translated as deinstituting. So that already gives you a little bit of a sense of what it could mean 
through that act of interpretation. Basically, in, in politics, constitution, the constitution of the United States, the constitution of politics, and also even in relation to revolutions, when there is a certain constituent uh, process. process that uh, gets assimilated into this constituted uh, state of things or whatever it is, you know. But, mm -hmm. I just continue a little. Mm -hmm. Or in other words, the sovereign and instituting powers were the ones that became rebellious without instituting pretensions. As a doctrine of political sovereignty would expect, while exercising their destitutional powers on the constituted powers, this seems to be the paradox of the 19th and 20th. An assemblage of instituting powers disposed in such a way that far from founding a new sovereign order operates by delegitimizing the politics executed in its name. It constituted neither a step toward a strategy of power nor the end of an accumulation process. Unlike political revolutions, this destituent insurrection did not produce a situation of situations, a center replacing centrality of the state it questioned. So in a way, Marcello is trying to think this paradox, which is since, let's say, it depends, you can go back to, let's say, what he says, Maurice Blanchot, thinking about the May 68, we can think about what happened that Marcello has also written about in, in, it, in the Italian experience, the long 68, as it's called, in the 70s, we can think about Chiapas, uh, we could think about the LA revolts. Uh, he situates it in this moment of, of Buenos Aires and that movement, and he's trying to say over these last 20 years, we've had a, a whole series of struggles that do exactly this. They seem to form some uh, insurrectionary force that unsettles destitutes the existing political order without any claim to wanting to kind of institute a new uh, sovereignty. And uh, the traditional left has basically demarcated this as the weakness and the lack of these movements. And Marcello is actually trying to say, no, they got something wrong. This is actually something like another idea of politics that uh, unsettles a, a whole history, which is basically like a Western history. So uh, for us that also have been thinking a lot in a kind of decolonial light, thinking through kind of also struggles for abolition, this is also very interesting because it touches on aspects of what, what in a way could unsettle this Western metaphysics the politics we inherit of modernity, all, all that tradition, which even has emancipatory ones, we know. And that's kind of how he's trying to approach it, I think, trying to reclaim or redeem aspects of those histories of struggle, but in a way against modernity and against this Western kind of a, in, implantation of a very hegemonic idea of what even politics is. So, yeah. Do you have something you want to add? Uh, yeah, I think more also in relation to the notion of destitution, in in relation to the history of philosophy, even uh, throughout the twentieth century, 
it's almost there is something needed to take out a glue that has been put there between things that should not have been glued together. So in a way, uh, Marcello has a very specific take on it, what René was reading, that he is within the political movement, within the political thinking, to be able to see like the fruits even and work them out much more of what others ha have maybe also worked even more abstractly. I am sure he's able to also work it up more abstractly, but what's nice about uh, uh, this book is that it's able to open and unfold the, the kind of one thing about this question of revolution, constituent and constituted, and the question of destitute and with destitu destitution, which is about uh, taking out the glue that has been glued between like the people and the state. They have been glued together, democracy and the government, you know, or, you know, the state, same. It's in a way what escaped within this uh, constituent power that he sees as also destituent, meaning as it never uh, forms itself as constituted, it just troubles their uh, uh, forms that have been closed and opens them in order to create something that will come, that has a lot to do with the notion of time, of history, but in a very different way. So, it sounds Yeah, I you mean, gave us... Asks, hmm? yeah. Sure. I was just gonna add that Marcello adds how to put an end to a form of rule that does not want to end. I mean, in a way, I think if there is one question that is running through through the book is this kind of uh, almost cycle that repeats itself in the revolutionary experience where something is constituent seems to be unsettling the existing order but in its constituency if it succeeds quote unquote from that historical kind of view it forms again a kind of a state a government that then can only betray. And uh, there is also much deeper kind of uh, philosophical, uh, political aspects of this that then let's say, you know, the, the one I started with was reading through the inflection of Colectivo Situaciones. If we restart the discussion and think through a thinker like Walter Benjamin or uh, Giorgio Gamben, then then again, you'll get different inflections of what, why this destituent, you know, in a very short way, let's say, which is difficult to do with, with Benjamin, but uh, there is this kind of violence in the, in the critique of violence, which Marcello also rightly points out could be understood as a critique of government. This kind of, let's say, insurrectionary uh, violence of the struggle that unfolds against a kind of tyrannous uh, situation, government, state, in the constituting of that produces something like police. You know, at some point, Marcello says that the modern state is indistinguishable from police, that its politics is police. And what is police? And when we talk about, let's say, ab abolishing police, uh, police is basically that uh, kind of uh, indiscernible line between the kind of uh, this constituent violence that is uh, arbitrary in a way, 
and the 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 constituted one. So it's this kind of a zone within the state where, in a way, the anarchy of power, let's say, that was once the anarchy of the constituent process, uh, is is brought into the state. And so the arbitrariness of police violence is part and parcel of the modern state. And so any struggle to abolish police is 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 destituent in that sense of of actually uh, it would be the unraveling and destituting in some sense this the modern state the whole mess western so so there are some just more interesting things to think through that are hard to do in a kind of a short way but um this kind of founding law and then the law that preserves even the revolution uh, is is very uh, troubling for someone like Benjamin. So he's trying to think another kind of possibility with with someone like Benjamin Marcello. Yeah, uh, moving right along, um, Irene, I think it was you who mentioned um, different forms of temporality. And at one point early in the book, uh, Tari is talking a lot about time and temporality, and he defines revolutionaries at one point as being activists of end times. Um, So for him, I think what he's trying to draw out is that actual revolutionary activists, as opposed to a more uh, impotent form of political activist, has a different relationship to time and history more broadly. Um, Can someone maybe speak a bit on that and unpack a bit of what he's trying to get at? Yeah, I mean, Irene, you want to? I, I can start, yeah. and then you can. Well, it's it, the 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 notion of linear history is basically what we inherit from this kind of uh, Western uh, modernist capitalist uh, uh, world, in a way, that homogeneous uh, world that wants to affirm itself as the one and only world there is. So. Our task is to understand that this linear history of past, present, and future is now. It's almost saying like the day of judgment is right now. So our relation to a certain past is 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 feeling it in our present and feeling this is really important for us for this, uh, you know, coming commune, whatever, we will get to that. In a way, we need to to affirm it, we need to actualize it, to work on it, be, have it, feel it, you know, in our presence. So all these moments, what we need to let go also, and, and feel this kind of uh, everything in this current moment now, rather than uh, feeling like all oh, the notion of future, which is an ideological notion of waiting until the right moment comes, until this uh, happens. Uh, no, everything is there now. And so, in a way, how can we create this form of life that allows us to understand time as, as such, as, as the end of times, basically, that... Yeah, I mean, uh, let's say if capitalist uh, colonial time is like the the time of the end, you know, this kind of seemingly more and more 
a palpable march towards apocalypse uh, that we're being marched on. I mean, the, 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 I think this idea of, of a temporality that, that disturbs this forward marching and uh, also maybe opens up a whole other, in a way, unclosed uh, histories. You know, in a way, what what Marcello often comes back to in the in the text is is also again very related to Walter Benjamin's concept of history, in which there's a kind of a, a an experience of time which is not linear. It's uh, disrupted time. It's the kind of pulling the emergency brake of this uh, train progress. of progress. And it's not, it's kind of uh, resisting that whole aspect of even the left history that, that Benjamin already saw that, you know, associated too much itself with uh, capitalism. I mean, even the colonial process, Marx names it as like primitive accumulation, as if it was some phase. Whereas we know it as we see it today, it's the, the racial aspect of it, the patriarchal aspect of it is embedded so so this kind of question of questioning of the temporality is at the heart of also the struggle and in a way uh he calls that the unfinished you know uh that that for the western kind of colonial capitalist patriarchal history history is closed is always kind of that that part. Those are old chapters: the genocide, the colony, the enslavement, and 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 from a, from this messianic, let's say, perspective, thinking with Benjamin Marcello would say it's unfinished. So, in a way, this revolution that that we struggle towards or think through, or even uh, this kind of fragments of an experience of a process that he is trying to narrate of a coming communism is an attempt to uh, kind of uh, not close history and to keep all those lines as, as if they are present, which I think for colonized people is always like that. It's never closed. It's unfinished. And, and so I think... It's a, it's a very rich space because uh, if we are able to disrupt that time and not see everything as a kind of foregone conclusion that our lives are going to be programmed by Silicon Valley evermore, then, then, then something opens, which is not this kind of unitary hegemonic temporality that we're all, that globalization kind of uh, rehearses over and over in our experience of everyday life. Basically, there is a quote here um, that Marcello uses, you're no longer yourself, but blank pages on which the revolution writes its own commandments. This is in from Brecht, says the party chief to the agitators in the didactic drama. Uh, drama. <laughs> it's a drama also, because it's, a, it's about also the question of identity. So if if the identity is meeting itself where it should be, then this is where destitution should work, in a way. Or so, unwork. Yeah, should be <laughs> correctly. Mean, it should be something should be dislodged from there, because otherwise we we will go back into the assimilation of this into a kind of government or something 
rather than nothing, rather than the opening, it will close again in terms of the activist as opposed to from a, from becoming a, revolutionary. From a very kind of practical, let's say, practice point of view, or I think tactile point of view, it's also the temporality of means to an end. Like destituting that is about, you know, everything has always been in this history of this kind of politics and the metaphysics of it. Things are sacrificed. Everything is thought like, I'll do this for the revolution. I'll do this. Right. And, and so that is also a temporality that we have to disrupt. So, go, you know, the, so the destitution also opens up this space of, of uh, you know, let's say use or inoperativity. These are kind of, let's say, other concepts that disturb this idea of action being something as a means to an end. So, uh, and, and they disrupt that temporality of a kind of a something done in the name of or for a better future. It's right here, right now, as I'm using this, as I'm inhabiting this place, how can I uh, turn it upside down in a way and just unsettle the kind of uh, set of norms that are in this, the flows that, that make everything work, that reproduce this reality in its kind of oppressive dimension. So I think we're kind of connecting to other questions you had shared in writing, so we should stop and, <laughs> yeah, and move um, through your, your questions, maybe. Right, moving right along. Um, uh, Taria at one point um, talks about the proletariat, um, and he has this interesting uh, passage where he tries to argue that uh, the proletariat is not a class as we traditionally think of it, but a political orientation. Um, he writes, quote, the proletariat as a revolutionary class, in any case, never defines itself through economic categories, but rather through its destructive force and acts of solidarity, which together constitute its potential. Even in Marx, the proletariat is never defined as an economic class. Instead, employing messianic language, he wrote that it is the factual dissolution of the world order. Um, and I wanted to bring this up partly because I think it continues with what you've been developing regarding temporality, that it is kind of this dissolving, destituting force that absolves a former order and tries to bring about another one. So can you maybe develop that a little and explain what he's trying to get at here in talking about the proletariat as, again, an orientation, not a, a static object? Mm-hmm. Well, you say it, it's it's a lot is said in within the, the the quote you read. Actually, it's a it's a basically the the dictatorship of economy uh, follows even the struggle by kind of formulating a class that is based on that same economy that is oppressing in a way. So to dislodge that class even from from there. It's, it's becoming then again political. Political in the sense of destitution, meaning asking the very same place and location of politics in this Western modernity. So where it has been placed has to be dislodged. No? So a lot has to do with like moving from uh, uh, 
one way of thinking into another at the base of it. So he asks a question, are you at peace with our current epoch? Not who you who you are, but how you are that which you are. So thinking through this kind of idea of a proletariat as marked by not a kind of economic category, but almost a tonality, uh, a relation to, the, to also history that doesn't basically identify in any way, never identifies with history's victors. And so, the, you know, he, he quotes Ernesto de Martino, who is a, a very interesting anthropologist, just a little quick thing. He says, uh, so like this idea of memory without benefit, that in a way capitalist colonial reality produces this memory without benefit, which is like you can remember all the history of the oppressed, but there is nothing that uh, would enable you to, in a way, redeem those histories because the order is like the terms and conditions have been settled. And so there is this kind of idea even of communism is is not as an idea of the world, but an unraveling of a praxis within the world. So this kind of moment of of this now time yet sight, you know, that in this very moment we are able to do just that, redeem all of that. And all of the metaphysics of kind of Western modernity and capitalist life is, is cutting us off from that potential that we have and all through this kind of enforcement of, of our means and ends. And but also he speaks about it in terms of strike. So in a way, a, the strike that is cut off from an end, as you know, you were saying, so it's not a means to get better wages or get a, get a better conditions for your work. No, it is to interpret work as such. So it's not the agent of. Uh, it's it's basically not to. It's to uh, to to have inoperativity rather uh, than work at the center of the political uh, thinking. No, because for a long time the political thinking of let's say roughly and uh, loosely said left was always dependent on, on this idea of work. So, and this is a big problem uh, if we are not interrogating that concept itself. So we take the notion of inoperativity and the strike as the cessation of all, all these activities in a way, so. I mean, just as a interesting, you know, to build up a little bit the, the mental space of what he thinks, you know, he refers to different thinkers so in that moment, he, he refers to Hannah Arendt, but we could talk about a lot of other people who, who tried to think this, but she, she talks about this kind of the reductiveness of a kind of economic, uh, let's say, sensibility uh, loses this, this sense that any group that is totally founded on a kind of an economic uh, idea can also be mobilized for Nazism, let's say, or fascist politics. And uh, so how this kind of um, uh, emotional space, affective space of life, but that cultural aspect, let's say, is also critical, you know, 
Marcello also talks about spiritual life, let's say, of, of struggle, which, which again, a very materialist, a productivist, left kind of tradition, you know, uh, has also excluded in a way. Uh, so, so the, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to think about it, but I, I think, um, yeah, maybe we can stop there just to allow more time for other things. Yeah, moving right along, um, one of the most interesting concepts, at least for me, that Tari brings up in this book is that of the metropolis as a place where political antagonism is hidden or mystified and obscured. Uh, to quote him real quickly, he writes, uh, the metropolis is the technological organization of generalized hostility, the extensive and radical instrumentalization of a particular emotional tonality, which has to be broken if we are to discover the character of our problem, that is, of the enemy. Um, and I, I love that little passage because I think it just spoke to uh, a difficulty that I think a lot of people, especially on the left, find today in trying to organize people and to develop a movement, um, the difficulty in naming an antagonism and an enemy. Um, uh, so I'm wondering if you could uh, maybe develop what Terry's getting at with his idea of the metropolis here, um, which is not a, a geographical space, but or it is, but in a more abstract sense. Yeah. I, I would just build a bridge between even what we were talking about before and now in coming back to, uh, to, to Arendt, which is just this idea of, of an, uh, like a socialization through econom economization. You know? and, and I think the metropolis is in a way, uh, for Tari, the, a figure of several things, you know. One is the kind of uh, notion of governmentality, which we can come back to. Um, but, you know, he starts with this whole idea of the territory as being something that is uh, outside in a way. Uh, it's, it's a common land. The original kind of notion is, is like a common land that is for planting and uh, agricultural use in the Roman time. And then shortly, maybe by the second century, I think he, he says there, there's a new uh, notion of territory, which is uh, like connected to terror and sovereignty. And uh, so let's say the old idea of sovereignty was based around control of territory. And he arrives to this figure of the metropolis as a kind of transformation of that old image of a the sovereign and the territory uh, to the metropolis, which is a much more complex governmental paradigm in which in a way uh, even it's no longer a kind of uh, situated in, in urban space. It's a kind of a, a way of economizing, uh, governing no longer a territory, but people and things, bodies, individuals, you have populations, you have kind of flows. Uh, it's much more abstract. And you're part of this kind of whole, let's say, economization, uh, mathematization, statistics, algorithms. 
So you become kind of an instrument within that larger uh, economy, you know, an economy in that sense of governance of the world. Uh, so it's a kind of whole science. But also, in a way, if the factory was a site of struggle before, Metropolis is a, a kind of a new uh, new place of, of that struggle because there is this kind of idea, what you're talking about is like a new notion of production, but also all kinds of production. is also production of forms of life within this metropolis. metropolis. And it's also not the one maybe that one, you know, how to kind of uh, uh, define within there a kind of uh, the forms of life that we want to create. And he speaks also about the different recent struggles that are also defined as destituent. It's all this um, unhappiness of, of this world that we live in and, and the kind of things that arose against it from Tahrir Square, uh, Occupy, uh, Movement of the Squares, uh, and, and all these are basically within the realm of the metropolis. So in a way, to create a language and legibility for struggle, we need to kind of consider uh, the place of struggle, and we need to kind of break it, take it apart, to be able to as an image of, of uh, even introducing this, he, he goes back to Benjamin and his kind of uh, chronicles of his uh, youth in Berlin. And he gives this image of Benjamin kind of at the same time imagining the urban space as a site of conflict, almost uh, with this premonition of what fascism was coming, you know. And so thinking about this urban space as a kind of site of war, but at the same time, Benjamin keeps imagining that he's going to construct this map of affective relations uh, that, you know, friendships, social clubs, communist social clubs, loves. And so Tari is trying to kind of build this double image on the, at the same time, there's this kind of uh, mega device of the metropolis that, uh, of course, has advanced much further since Benjamin's time, because then there was still a worker struggle and it was a city as an urban space. But now it's more like a device, this, this metropolis. But the antidote, in a way, is also embedded within this kind of existential territory, let's say, with the image of Benjamin. Uh, so, so, in a way, there's this conflict between the ever-expanding metropolis and he says, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, some of us were thinking that there was something to redeem inside the urban space. But now we see it's just been prepared for fascism. And I think what he means by that is more if you see it in this kind of like technological way as well. You know, this kind of smart city, everything is hooked up, this idea of the good, you know, the cyber citizen. Basically, what he says is now the model of governmentality. It's it, it's and so it's not the you know disciplined factory worker. So that kind of fascism that's also a liberal variety. It's not the nostalgic one of let's say Trump, but it's much more kind of taking over the whole 
existential territory. You're always on the phone. You can't navigate the city without a phone. You, you know, uh, and, and that totalitarian dimension of it is something that he thinks can only be disrupted through a kind of an, an, another assertion of a territory that, of course, he says, by and large, has happened in a lot of, like, on the edges or peripheries of the cities. Right. He so, gives examples of... So basically what, yeah. what you're saying is that he, he describes the notion of territory uh, that can be something outside the metropolis so that the, the, the territories can be, uh, in a way... Uh, refusing that kind of uh, power of the plugged-in city, all the kind of uh, neoliberal, anything that is uh, the, all the, the garbage, sorry to say, and also living uh, in, in common, in a, finding the friends the same way that Benjamin at the time was running to find the, uh, his uh, friend, his lover, and, and so this, this territory as a kind of definitely outside the metropolis, but, but on, in its limits, as you were saying. So but also like outside, in, not in the sense of, uh, not in the sense of literally, it can outside, even be... Outside in a philosophical... T- right. You're, you're right. stepping right to my next question, outside, which was on outside. his account of the commune, which is uh, a point that is outside but within the borders of the metropolis, um, this kind of contradictory space. Um, And he also describes it as kind of a point of resistance against the current of the metropolis. Um, Can can you maybe develop that understanding of the commune within, yet without, or beyond them? Well, if you think of it as a time, time question, as time of existence, as time of forming your the form of life with others, then the question of outside is also the outside of time that has been given to us. So what we, was it uh, Marcello, the wall of time? The wall against the enemy is the wall of time somewhere, he says. Yeah, like it's no longer concrete. The the wall between us and and the enemy is not made of concrete, but is made of time. And that's in in the existence itself, in our own, being the existence, no, it's not being with capital letter. It's the existence. It's not the submission to that being with capital letter. It's not submission to those uh, uh, what puts us in prison. No, this uh, always what you were saying before. In the name of this, I have to do this. I have to go to work. I have to do this. No, we need to look for the friends for this commune and to spend the time to sing together, to speak, to create all kinds of worlds around it, to be able to create this outside, philosophical outside that has to do with the time and, and with all the kind of basis of understanding of our being in the world, not that moral understanding, another one. And I think the commune is, in a way, what is, again, it's, it's what allows for this other let's say use of time use of of space so and use of our own bodies use of our our ourselves let's say and even in that sense that's why it's a space of in kind of enhancing our destituent potential 
our ability to extract ourselves and exit this kind of reproduction of the world that destroys worlds. So the commune is a kind of a, a possibility of, uh, of, of, of this forming of a form of life. It's, uh, and I think that there is, maybe if I come back to something you said, it's not, I think, this idea of within and against only. I mean, in the spatial sense, he doesn't want to say, okay, the territory is outside the metropolis, let's all go to the countryside. He keeps saying, this is not about a detachment by a group of like aristocrats. This is not about bucolic countrysides only, although many interesting and rich experiences happen in the last years in such spaces and communes. And But he's saying that tension has to be there. It's not, it's neither in the territory nor in the metropolis, but it's in the kind of residue of the conflict that occurs between this kind of re reclaimed territory and this kind of totalitarian metropolis. So it's something, the commune is in a way that, that space I think that is uh, also the possibility of changing the social relations, changing the use of world, use of time, mm -hmm. uh, and is, is building up of a territory. Right, it's not the metropolis factory of the of social life. And I mean, one of, of uh, one very beautiful uh, line that uh, Marcello writes, that, that which we call egoism at a molecular level is called property at a molar one, which is, says a lot basically where he wants to go. You see, so the destitution of the notion of property through use, maybe you're saying, but also this uh, uh, notion of the subject, the ego, all that one inherits that is part of this capitalistic uh, modern world is to, to, yeah. to be able to enter into another mode of being together. Kind of I in another place says that has the we within and the we that has an I that has worked on itself. Unworked itself also. Basically unworked. <laughs> Destituted itself. I mean, no, this thing is also very important that Irene is bringing up and um, through Marcello, that the metropolis isn't just a kind of a sort of physical space. It is an emotional space, an affective space, and it's a kind of a modeling a kind of form of life. So, for instance, he describes very richly, I think, for anyone who's tried to kind of liberate and open this kind of spaces of different existence, even let's say the experience of Occupy uh, on a kind of, which can be in that sense as a commune, you know, um, is the, metrop the metropolis also is in within us. So he describes this kind of, let's say, thinking of a literal commune where all these kind of territories territorialities of the metropolis, let's say, of like uh, egoism, property, uh, you know, all these kind of aspects of the modeled subject of the perfect metropolis enters that space. And he describes it like as if they're dragging in the sand from the desert of the metropolis into that commune. So there's this kind of constant... Uh, never settling for an inside and an outside, not 
clearly imagining like the commune is the end, you know, because at the, the if there is a kind of horizon, it's about exit from a, from an entire factory that is this world that you know uh, colonizes, uh, destroys the possibility of of multiplicity of worlds. So. Yeah, I mean, he he says also the messianic time in terms of the this time that is pulsing within the time of history. There is also the destituent territory within the constituent one. So that says also a lot in relation to that metropolis, which is the homogeneous constituent. Yeah, to shift gears a little bit, uh, I want to bring up another theme. Uh, to rediscuss is which is love, and more specifically the refusal of, of unhappy love, um, which caught my attention partly because the title is "There Is No Unhappy Revolution." But um, to quote him again, real briefly, he writes, "Quote: Love is continually traversed by a line of extreme intensity, which makes it an exquisitely political affect. Claiming that there is no unhappy love means taking a position against." some of the strongest and long-lasting myths of Western civilization, that of unhappy love, of the guilt and destiny of suffering to which humanity is condemned. And I think this kind of picks up some of what we've been describing as ways, finding new ways of being and kind of trying to disrupt uh, a more solid sort of temporality or a solid way of being and trying to take seriously the demand that life be good and enjoyable. Um, and taking love seriously it, then for him has this really important political dimension. Um, could you maybe unpack that a little bit? Well, it, it, it can be unpacked in many ways, but I'm not sure which one is the best. I mean, the, the way he starts, I think, or one of them is this image from a lesson of Deleuze, uh, actually on cinema and with Nietzsche that uh, Gilles Deleuze uh, French philosopher was giving, I guess, in the eighties, maybe earlier, and uh, he he basically gives this image that there there is no there is no unhappy love, in the sense that uh, even doomed love affairs can find joy in the experience. So that it, because love is something that allows us to have access to uh, a dimension of life, we we can't uh, have a perspective on before, in a way. So love is this kind of, uh, in a way, destitution of self, right? Love is the experience of the undoing of self, is seeing the world, the joy of, of the with. And so as long as that experience is there, you know, which is, he says, is, has to be counterposed by a kind of, let's say, he doesn't say that, Maybe even capitalist love can exist, but certainly a liberal love uh, can exist. Uh, maybe, maybe he's trying to think a kind of decolonial de love. Uh, I only say that because today we went to the farmer's market and someone had a book uh, at one of the stalls uh, with this title, Decolonial Love. But I thought it's, not, it's a nice in resonance to this, but... An idea of love that wouldn't be a possession, that isn't in a way an experience. It's not property. Uh, and it's not also like polyamory, as he says, uh, Deleuze, neither me nor Nietzsche, 
you know, Marcello's citing. But so this idea of an uh, of an unhappy love in relation to an unhappy revolution is that as long as it it increases our potential to sort of uh, experience this alterity of of a radical alterity beyond the self and uh, beyond this kind of liberal, colonial, capitalist individual, there is something very um, necessary to draw from that. And so there's this constant movement also that I think is really interesting in Marcello's work, which is like uh, not allowing for kind of mega ideas or this idea of base superstructure and, you know, abstract ideas of politics. It's something that is like true for, for us in our social life, but true also in a kind of, in this larger relation with larger ensembles, larger political configurations. So let's say the means to end thinking, disrupting that both on a kind of larger political level, but also in our everyday existence, you know, how do friendships and those loving relations not become instrumental, not become means to an end, not become property, not become, you know, uh, productive. So, and, and so there is this quest or searching for, uh, for this kind of almost like an ethics, which mm-hmm. I would say if we go back to the metropolitan life, it's not just an affective space, it's an ethical, in that sense, uh, forming, forming of life. So this is, this is what I think part of, part of this idea of there is no unhappy revolution is also to see each of these defeats as necessarily, we can't reject them. Something was uh, radical in them. Even, you know, there's going to be a section in the book that goes through the Soviet experience and tries to reclaim a dimension of that, a destituent potential there as well, exactly in relation to the metropolis. But the idea would be that uh, nevertheless, there's been this limit and this cycle and how to get out of it, and that's hence comes this figure or idea of destitution, which you know Marcello is is just mapping out. I mean, it's that's also, why it's also in love. By definition, you are going beyond yourself, and I think that is a fundamental uh, kind of parallel to the revolution and the commune. And the other one is the relation to time. And the, the the notion of 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 refusing the world, as he said, as it is, this is something that is a, a kind of shared between communism and love. Um, I mean, it is something that is uh, in in different places also. Love and communism are together because love it, it's an experience that needs to be also destituted to be understood in such a way that it can lead to communism in, in the thinking and feeling. So what you're mentioning, the, the notion of the, of the ethical versus the, the moral, the notion of identity, it's, it's all about the breaking also. The love is something that opens rather than closes. So... But we can talk about this later. 
Yeah, moving right along. Oh, do you want to add more? Or do you want to? I think the question of happiness uh, maybe is important. I mean, when we live or kind of concept of, you know, what is what is the concept of, of kind of thinking about even invoking happiness? I mean, it's a troubling notion for me. I mean, if we had time to sit with Marcello, I would talk more about it. And when we live is another one that, maybe has been coming from kind of global south, whatever it's called the global south, I would just say colonized places of the world that is a kind of reclamation of what is actually a good life, you know, and and what how can we redefine that in our own terms? And I think uh, happiness is, is basically connected to that. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, I mean, I wonder if one can also relate this happiness to joy, which is a kind of a Spinozian notion, and that make us makes us closer to the notion of the ethical, which is the encounter with another body that creates this, uh, intensifies the the potential of my being there, my, let's say, my ability to act in, the, in, in those terms and, and does not inhibit, so it becomes a, a, a joy. So this kind of encounter is, you know, that can be described as love, but also as friendship and what enhances the living together in a kind of a commune that Marcello is talking about in this coming. Home. Yeah, he says, for instance, like even a love gone wrong is an experience of happiness as long as it witnesses this growth in potential and, and, and also changes our relation to the world. And I think that too, too often, like, uh, mm-hmm. again, these kind of experiences, for instance, from an old left, like what happened last year, the, the George Floyd uprising, right? It's just seen as like, wow, how amazing uh, this movement, but what did it yield kind of in the, in the constituent uh, forces? I mean, you can say, okay, some got rid of one stupid president for another, maybe more fascist in the old nostalgic sense to a more liberal version of it. Uh, yes. But it didn't take power. It didn't, you know. I think the question is then, what what is it that these experiences are are actually doing and undoing? Maybe, maybe they allow us to perceive something that before we didn't have access to. And and, and maybe can... and maybe the current political kind of imaginary is what's limiting that experience to go further uh, without trying to constitute itself. And so I think that that's part of the shifting of this kind of idea of the unhappy revolution in relation to the unhappy love is how do we learn from also these experiences that are very rich if we allow them to be as glimpses of a certain kind of happiness. And uh, how do we create that those spaces and territories where we can experiment further with those affections, let's say, with those uh, undoings of ourselves, our old habits, our old uses of the city, for instance, during Occupy, 
wherever it unfolded, you know, the, whatever is called Occupy as an experience, let's say the occupation of the squares and, uh, you know, was this completely new experience of even the urban space, which was no longer this metropolis, but full of contact, full of different uses, different temporalities, people staying up all night together, planning things. And so there is this kind of also... Opening of the senses, perception, feeling, relation to language. Reproducing life collectively, eating together, you know, uh, cooking in the square, all that stuff that is kind of each person is left on their own to decide how to do, how to organize. So these produce a whole range of affects that then afterwards turn into depression because you don't know what to do because this existing kind of tyranny has, has the depression in it in a way. That, that kind of happiness of the capitalist happiness through consumption, which is its only form of happiness, is creating depression and the, the forms of, you know, because you that do. unsettled sense uh, affection that you had of a different possibility to live is denied and it can only be satisfied through consumption. And so, uh, or dreaming of this future, I don't know, of a liberated time through, you know, having other people work for you or indenturing other people. So it's a, it's a kind of, and not to say worse, I mean, destruction of the earth. So it's a kind of a, a very rich place in, yeah, in, the, in the text, but we can uh, continue maybe. Yeah, I want to kind of jump off right, right off what you've been developing. I've got a passage at the end highlighted uh, that kind of uh, summarizes a lot of this. So um, Tari writes at the end of the book, quote, the economistic view blocks any comprehension of those great affective and poetic undercurrents that decide the fate of any movement. Left theorists and activists today who politely discuss affective labor are in general only interested when those affects are wages, i.e. measured, without contesting the fact that they have become economic instruments, valorized and exchangeable like any other commodity. Forms of life are discussed as if they pertain only to other people. They are all blind to the true revolutionary force of affects, which is distinguished not for its political economic significance, but together with perception for its potential to build better worlds and destitute the petit bourgeois masses once and for all. So kind of to, I think, close things off here, I'm wondering if you could speak to the importance of AFEX uh, for these sorts of revolutionary movements and for people trying to organize in the streets or in their workplaces. You know, what is Therese as the importance or centrality of AFEX within uh, political organizing and activity? I mean, one thing I would say that maybe isn't in the book, but it's certainly important for Marcello, is this kind of understanding of it affects by being affected. So the idea that uh, whatever he would call a revolutionary becoming or becoming revolutionary is kind of this process where we open ourselves to being affected and the more that we open ourselves to being affected then we are also able to affect and so seeing 
you know, from that perspective, it's not instrumental. It's like if I open to the other, uh, what they kind of their experience, their uh, experience of, of, of reality, their truths, you know, there is a possible realm of, of being affected by one another. And through that, I think this kind of older forms of organization that are very goal-based uh, idea of an individual and an individual, and we have interests and we have to organize around this, it's in a way uh, losing sight of, you know, like the, the perfect image is think about the occupation of the squares again. Like you have people who become almost like uh, service workers, even even though that, that, that whole movement was about the destitution of the politics. People would, you know, come in who would be like doing it again, like an idea of a militant or an activist, kind of let's do this action for this attention of the media. Uh, but towards what, you know, the whole kind of, point that Marcello is trying to say is these are kind of experiments and experiences of another way of, of living with one another. And we want to continue to create spaces where that can proliferate. And that can only be done through a, a different kind of perception of, 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 of a politics that no longer discounts how we feel. No discounts uh, being tired does not discount our powerlessness in in the face of this metropol the tyranny of this metropolitan life uh, that extracts that we become walking cash machines, you know. So, not discounting all of that and not thinking that even if we're in a workplace, so called, that our horizon shouldn't be, you know, we happen to be there because we need to survive in this shit. But how do we kind of organize ourselves in, as a kind of form of life together through this, uh, these conditions that we've been given? I mean, in other words, you can say in this cosmology, this way, a mode of thinking is uh, the affect is one is that uh, nurtures the form of life. In a way, it's, it's who, who I am. I am a... a a way of being no? that is very close to a form of life. It's 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 at the base also philosophically of this uh, notion of a form of life that he is seeking, which is breaking this idea of values that will take us somewhere. The that uh, in the name of these values that there is something there that that is closing and constantly seeking a future of. Uh, uh, becoming something that is projected, it is a different way of being altogether. So affect is one important element of that. So, I, I think also the, there is this important point that he's trying to make, which is like uh, uh, fascism is precisely this kind of, is the mobilization of this affect this affective realm of inquietude, disquietude, through a kind of idea of belonging, nation, race, a leader, identifying with this kind of, and, and absorbing this 
let's say, dissatisfaction, this pessimism, this uh, unsettling. And so we have to think through that. I think he, he, he tries to say also again through Benjamin that without accounting for that as a kind of central place of organizing ourselves around also depression, anxiety, all these kind of affects that are predominating through this uh, kind of, you know, capitalist reality, let's call it. And uh, if we dismiss it, I mean, we risk to miss, uh, again, like the, the old kind of left politics would just say these are not, you know, reduces everything to a kind of economization and says these are really not important matters. You know, it's the kind of question of relations of production. We have to stick to that. Poetry, all these other realms of uh, thinking, uh, changing the sensual experience of life is not really it's secondary. And so there is another trouble and trap, though, I think, for all of us who are working at those spaces of art and poetry and thought. Uh, maybe more in this kind of affective dimensions, that that this same kind of, let's say, regime that we're up against, I like to call it the colony, but it can be capitalist realism, whatever we want to call it, is very adept at capturing uh, anything that seems to be uh, mobilizing that and, and through, let's say, the museum or through this kind of university and it's certain kind of uh, things that might unsettle it, it's, it tries to capture. Uh, and so it's very important to think this question of the commune, of, of, of this idea of communism or, you know, that, that Marcello is working through. But again, we're just laying out a sketch of the book. It's... it's full of really nice insights and, uh, you know, um, we're not trying to promote the book, but obviously we, we feel touched and affected by, by the writing and the questions he's asking. And again, I think, you know, uh, people can come at it from different perspectives, but it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a loving book, I think, because he's done some interesting, uh, effort to try to collect both kind of lived experience and the experience of reading and all the kind of affections from those philosophies to kind of street battles to experiences of trying to kind of let's say li live live a communist life and then and historical experiences and try to kind of synthesize them is always difficult but um I'm very grateful for, for his effort and that he asked us to try to, you know, share some of our, our affections with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting and dynamic book. So uh, Irene and Renee, thank you so much for being with us for the last hour. Thank, thank you. you.